1: Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 14 through 16.
0: Now, from that modeling, many scholars believe that Noah and the ark is not a type of the church of Israel being preserved through the tribulation, the believing remnant then where is the church? Answer: Church is non-Jewish. And I'm not saying Noah is, but in the type he would be. What is the type of the church? Enoch. Enoch was translated. Did not see death. Enoch was removed from the scene before this was played out. Okay? Now, that's one example. Another example I'm fond of using is, we all remember the famous story of the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. And we had uh, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, I'm sorry, you know Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right. Uh, The secular world has preserved their secular names for it. The uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his ragtime band says, hey, uh, when the music starts, you all bow down, you bow or burn, right? And these three guys say, no, thanks, they don't. You all know the story out of Daniel chapter three. To give you the context, the chapter, chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the young man takes over, his father dies. He's general of the army, but while he's seizing sieging, uh, Jerusalem, he finds out his father dies. now king of Babylon. So he goes back. He inherits all these old timers that are the staff, the soothsayers and wise men and stuff. So he has this troubled dream. And he wants to find out if these guys could cut the mustard. So he says, hey guys, I want you to interpret my dream. But by the way, this is the fine print is, I won't tell you what you tell me. tell me what the dream is and what it means. And they say, hey, no, there's no one, no man on earth can do that. He's just trying to put him to tell you. Then he explains his professional development system. He's gonna cut them limb from limb and make their houses a dunghill if they don't. They can't, so the word goes out, the order is given. But that includes the whole job description. Daniel and his friends were in that job description. They said, hey, why so hasty? and they petition and get the audience with the king, and, and as you all know this thing, they, Daniel interprets the dream, and Nebuchadnezzar is blown away, quite impressed, and makes th- and rewards them. Now from d- chapter 2, you can get an idea how popular Daniel and his three friends were among the, the old palace guard. And the old palace guard rig up this thing to get Nebuchadnezzar on his ego trip so that wh- whoever doesn't bow down to the music is going to get uh, slaughtered, knowing full well that these faithful Jews will not do that. So you all know the story. They refuse. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance. They say, our God can preserve us, but even if he won't, uh, up yours, O king. And so they, they get thrown in the fiery furnace. You all know the story. Nebuchadnezzar builds the image, what? 66 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. What's the Nebuchadnezzar a type of? The Antichrist. And he forces his worship at the pain of death. So he's what? The Antichrist. What are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a type of? Israel. They're in the fiery furnace. Fire is an idiom of the tribulation in the Old Testament. They are preserved through the fire. They're not kept out of the fire. They're preserved in the fire. No harm comes to them. By whom? Right. Nebuchadnezzar sees them down there. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is a type of the Antichrist. We have the three Jewish young men in the fire furnace as a type, if you will, of Israel preserved, the remnant, if you will, preserved through the tribulation. Question, where's Daniel? He's not there. Many, many people read that story, hear that story, see in the in Sunday school books, and never occurs to you, what happened to Daniel? Several possibilities. One is that he bowed down. Don't think so. If you know anything about Daniel, that's not likely. Was it that he bowed down, uh, that he didn't, bow, he refused to bow down, but he was not accused? That's also not very likely. If he was there, he either bowed down, which is not true, or he didn't bow down. He would not have refused and not been accused, clearly. Which means he wasn't there. Now, where was he? We don't know. The record's silent on that. Our guess is, since he was very high official, he was probably on an errand of state. And his enemies used that opportunity to attack his second string. That's a guess. But biblically, or I should say typologically speaking, Daniel's absent from the scene. And I personally think that that's significant typologically. We're getting into a typology here and and that's a whole other thing. Uh, The other thing that we have seen, uh, we've explored a lot in Sodom. It was clear as Abraham was interceding for Lot that the Lord made it clear that if there's one righteous, the judgment would have been spared. And in fact, there was one righteous, namely Lot, despite his being out of fellowship. And these two angels get Lot out of there, and in fact, as we read the text carefully, not only did they get him out as a favor to him, they point out to Lot that they they cannot accomplish the mission until they get him out of there. It's a prerequisite condition for these angels to bring the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah to get Lot out of there. Basic principle being laid out for us there. Another issue, I'm just throwing a bunch of stuff out because I keep getting the question after why do I think and why do I believe there's a pre-trib rapture? And this is, there's a whole bunch of reasons that are not doctrinal proofs. I'm responding to the questions, why do I personally see a pre-trib rapture? And this, these are all, I'm adding up to that. Daniel chapter 9, the famous 70 weeks of Daniel, highlights clearly, and it's too technical to get into tonight. If you know what I'm talking about, uh, you'll follow me. If not, I recommend you get the tapes. But in the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, we clearly have... Well, there's four verses. A scope verse to begin with, we have a period of time of 69 weeks, and a period of time of seven weeks after that. We have a scope verse, we have a detailed description of the 69 weeks, then we have a verse that describes the events that occur between the 69th and 70th week, before the 70th week start, and then the last verse of the 70th week. The point is, there is a gap. 69 contiguous weeks, a parenthesis, and a last week. That parenthesis is one of the things that's paramount to understanding the 70-week prophecy of Daniel. This concept of a gap may seem strange to you. When you get to Revelation chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, the, the, the woman and the man-child and Satan and all that, again between verses 5 and 6, the same gap occurs. It was interesting to me to discover that this gap occurs in Psalm 22, between verses 21 and 22, It occurs in Psalm 118, in the middle of verse 22. It occurs in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that we quoted Christmas, but we quoted up to but not to the last part, which is the second coming issue. We have um, Isaiah 53 and verse 10, same thing. In Isaiah chapter 61, we have two verses. The same gap occurs, and none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Luke 4, when reading that in his ministry, opening his ministry, he reads from Isaiah 61 and he stops at a comma, closes the book, sets it down, and says, this day is that prophecy fulfilled in your ears. Now that comma has lasted 1,900 years. We can go out in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21-22. I mentioned Daniel 9, 26 and 27. I have to write these down, but I'll just go through this so you follow where I'm headed. Daniel 11, it occurs, Hosea 2, Hosea 3, Amos 9, Micah 5, Habakkuk 2, Zephaniah 3, Zechariah 9, Matthew 10, Matthew 12, Luke 1, Luke 4, as I just mentioned, Luke 21, in the middle is verse 24, John 1, verses 5 and 6, 1 Peter 1, and Revelation 12. Now, why did I go through this list? There are 24 of them. And if you're a mystic like I am, I think that's very, very interesting relative to the 24 elders in, in Revelation as a cabalistic uh, allusion to what I believe is the church. It's interesting to me that in all of those, God's dispensation, if you will, are dealing with Israel and his dealing with the church are mutually exclusive. You can get in a whole study of the gospels and it's when Israel rejects her Messiah the positioning of the church is established. And the whole age of grace as the dispensations like to call this period that we live in from that time and I won't quarrel for the moment exactly when it starts that's another issue. Uh, up until the rapture is clearly a parenthesis in which God's focus is the Gentiles in the sense of the church. Now, are all believers in the church? No. They're believers prior. They're believers in the Old Testament. Are they part of the church? No, they're believers. Are there believers in the New Testament prior to the church? Sure. The The apostles were sent to Israel two by two, specific missions set up there. And you, if you can get technical gospels, you study that very carefully. And yet, there is an era that we enjoy. We take it all for granted. Very peculiar things abound to us that were not true then, and uh, they're just unique to us. So uh, that's the church. Now there will be a time when that's over. God will accomplish His purpose, and when that is completed, He will again choose to deal through to the world through Israel, not because they deserve it, just because He chooses to do that. When you understand that, you see the prophecies, you discover, clearly the prophecies are focusing on one or the other, and the the, the insight to unraveling the whole book of revelation is to recognize its Jewishness. Chapters four to the end are Jewish, Israel, hundred and forty four thousand, etc. It goes to great lengths to make that clear. There's a parenthesis in there of seven letters, seven churches that are a different issue. This is all a springboard from Enoch, if you will. Uh, the two witnesses issue, Enoch and Elijah, I mentioned that before that I personally, there's my own crazy notion that I think the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are Moses and Elijah because they're both Jewish. Enoch you know, question? If you're really mystical, you know about Ruth and Boaz. Naomi is Israel in the book of Ruth. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Ruth is the Gentile bride. Where is Ruth during the thrashing floor scene? At Boaz, Boaz's feet. And if you really get into the typology, and really want to go out in left field, that's a possibility. And of course, there are two models, at least, in the Old Testament, of the rapture. One of them my wife pointed out to me originally, which is in Isaiah 26. I have to digress on prophecy, because I don't want to be on apostates all evening long. Um, Okay. What's fun to do just before reading this is to read 1 Thessalonians 4, about the dead in Christ shall rise first, and all this. And then you come to Isaiah chapter 26 and read verse 19, where Isaiah says, uh, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Here's that resurrection concept. Awake and sing ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Then we get to verse 20. Come. Interesting word. That introduces Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It's also the word that introduces each of the seals, etc. Come and see. The N.C. is not in the, in the Hebrew, in the original, it's a, that's in the English. Come. Here it says, come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. What chambers? In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. What's he going to prepare? Chambers. And shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment. For how long? until the indignation is passed. This favored group of people, whoever they are, are going to be spared. They're hidden in chambers until the indignation is passed. Uh, I can almost historically imagine being in the home in Israel during in Egypt. We put the blood on the lintel to lock the door and waited for the death angel to pass by. Same psychology as I would mentally visualize this. Verse 21, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place... To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth shall also disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain." Interesting passage in the book of Isaiah. I personally believe this is um, elusive of the the rapture. And then I've got Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 3 here. That might be fun to take a quick peek at. Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, who have kept his ordinances? Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. Why? It may be ye shall be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Been interesting? You know the Old Testament prophets are just full of these little nuggets that that uh, Chuck showed me one today. Unrelated, but I have to share. He shared he shared this with me today, and I just I have to share it with you. It blew me away. Amos. Uh, Amos chapter eight. Verse 9 and 10. David says in chapter 8, verse 9, it says, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. How often we quote the you Oneness? Know, I say, There are all these passages where the sun's going to go dark. Well, we always allude to this, but then we read the next verse. And I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring up sackcloth upon lo- uh, all loins, and baldness upon every head, and I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day." What's he talking about? Crucifixion. When did the sun go down at noon? When Christ was crucified. And there's mourning for what? An only son. Isn't that wild? Never saw that before. Trek shared that with me. How interesting. Anyway. Yeah, we can make it. I've been dallying here. Let's get back to Jude chapter 1. <laughs> Okay. We've got verse 16, continuing the thought about these guys that Judah's talking about that Enoch prophesied against. He prophesied of these, saying, Behold, and so on. Who are these? Verse 16 amplifies this These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. This is how you recognize an apostate. And by the way, the church will be without excuse if it fails to recognize the apostates because of the epistle of Jude. We've looked at verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, and 13 so far. Those are descriptive. Now we get another one, verse 16. They're murmurers, complainers, and walking after their own lusts. Now these are idiomatically reflexive on the things we've just read because the murmurers, remember the people of Israel back in verse 5? And the complainers, remember the angels' dissatisfaction with their assigned place? and they're walking after their own lusts, Sodom and Gomorrah. See, those same things he used to open the epistle are here summarized in practical, everyday terms for you and I. Murmuring, complaining, and walking after their own lusts. Murmurers. Do you know this as a noun is found nowhere else in the, in the New Testament? A verb is, but not as a noun. In John chapter 6, verse 41, the Jews murmured at Jesus Christ when he spoke of being the bread of life. The disciples murmured in John 6 and also in Ephesians 2 are mentioned. Disciples murmured and then they walked no more with him, those that did. Murmuring is a sin of no minor importance. It is a hallmark of apostasy. We find that in Psalm 106, verses 24, 25, and 26 in 1 Corinthians 10, which we looked at earlier. Murmurs. Okay, that's one group. They murmured. Anyone want to murmur? read this carefully before you do. Next one, complainers. This as a noun appears nowhere else in the New Testament, only in Jew. The Pharisees found fault. They held their traditions higher. That's in Mark 7, okay? Making the Word of God of no effect because of traditions is a form of apostasy wherever it is found. Now, fault-finding may mark a professing Christian as one who has turned his back upon the truth. Complainers may be apostates. We saw that in verse 8 and 10, it's by way of review. It's amplified in 2 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 5. Complainers displeased the Lord in the days of Moses. We looked at that in Numbers 11, if you recall. It also displeased the Lord in Mark 7, when the disciples were doing it. Is there any reason to believe it doesn't displease Him today? displeased Him in the days of Moses, displeased Him in the days of our Lord in Mark 7? In the book of Jude, there's one group of people that were dissatisfied with their assigned place. And we saw what happened to them. They were the angels in verse 6, chained, they were kept under the day of salvation, they were kept under the day of judgment. And Paul contrasts that with, he's, he's uh, learned to be satisfied whatever state he finds himself in, in Philippians 4.11. Okay, we've got murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lusts, it says. And we've talked about that before. This is the same word the Lord uses in the parable of the sower, by the way, in Mark 4, verse 18 and 19. And we've read 2 Peter 3 about the scoffers walking after their own lusts at the end times. So we've got murmurs, complainers, and the lusting occurring in Numbers 14 11, and also Numbers 11, the history of Israel. This is all by way of review, that's why I'm going this rather quickly. Now again we have, it's interesting, we have the murmurs, complainers, walking up from their own lusts, and again, we have singled out this other attribute, their mouth speaketh great swelling words. Isn't that strange? Who does that typify? The Antichrist. Their mouth speaking great swelling words. Just to show you why this leaps out at me, if you look at 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 2.15, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, much wantonness of those that are just escaping from them. The whole passage from 15 through 21 deals with this uh, great swelling words thing. And we've talked about the identifier of the last leader on the face of the earth, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which speaks of the Antichrist, Revelation 13, verses 5 and 6. Basic hallmarks of this. I resist the temptation to get into 2 Thessalonians 2 tonight, or Revelation 13, verses 5 and 6. we have been there. We've been through that a lot, and we'll be getting into it again in other studies. So I'll pass that for now. But I'd like to focus on something else here in Jude. It mentions these uh, gross sins, and then focuses on their mouth, which speaketh great swelling words. And then it has another thing, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. What a subtle thing. You think from all these heinous sins, the fact that they're overly impressed in a pride thing seems so small. But what he's talking about is apostasy in the church, and one of its warning signs is when professionalism replaces the call of the Holy Spirit. How often we see advertisements, flowery introductions of some great person, That may be appropriate in the secular world, it's highly inappropriate in the church. By the way, I'm reading a book, I just read a book, that I have to commend to you. If you have not picked up a copy of Harvest, you need to pick it up and read it. I think as a Christian walk in modern times, it gives you an incredible contrast with uh, traditional ways versus the Lord's ways. Participants in this particular body, it's must-reading, because it's just an incredible summary, a quick digest of over 30 years of ministerial insight. What works, what doesn't, and why. Most precious, precious book, anything to do with the harvest, that um, chronicles the the, uh, origin, uh, what's happened at Calvary Chapel over the last uh, couple of decades. Incredible summary, very readable, very anecdotal, but right to where the rubber meets the road. Terrific, terrific thing. Very much in contrast with the passages that we've just just read. Now verses, the next block is verses 17 through 19, which is the upbeat. I think what we're going to do next time is finish the book of Jude, because we'll take it from verse 17 through the end, and we will get very specific some more, A few more warnings, some very specific encouragement and directions. Unlike the passages up till now, which reach deeply into the Old Testament, so I've always sort of, with my tongue in my cheek, I've assigned you homework for next time. In this case, I don't have a specific passage for homework next time, but I will commend to you another book. I'm going to commend to you two books tonight. The book Harvest I've just mentioned, that's sort of underscore, that's must reading. That's, you know, if you don't read that, you've missed the assigned reading. I'll give you an optional book that may not be for everybody, but it's if you have an intellectual turn of mind, if you have an um, interest in um, sharpening your perceptions of intellectual life in America, there is a book that is uh, heralded by many to become the book of the decade called The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. It's not a theological book. It's not a Christian book. It's a book, though, that is incredibly perceptive in a secular sense, very lucid, very articulate, very uh, profound in explaining the tragedy of the last several decades of education in America and what it means to you and I. Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. What, the reason I bring it up is that here is a brilliant Secular professor, with an incredibly distinguished career in history, with a deep passion for his students, University of Chicago and half a dozen other major universities, taught all over the world. Very bright, well-established person, great credentials, who has come to the conclusion that relativism is bankrupt, that our value system in America is non-existent. I'm not. Uh, suggesting you agree with everything he says. I'm, not sure, I'm sure you won't agree with his, his, his implied uh, remedy. But it's a profound insight into our culture, our music, our attitudes, our values. It's a scathing indictment of higher education over the last 30 years in America. And what, is, what the result has been. If you're of that turn of mind, I commend to you uh, that book. You, will, you, you probably have and you will hear uh, much said about it. But next time we'll pick up verse 17 and finish the book of Jude, and we'll also announce where we're going from there. Next time. Okay? Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just praise you for the privilege of hearing your word. We thank you, Father, for this epistle of Jude. We thank you that you have provided here some gleanings of the past, some perspective of what's coming. We thank you, Father. You've cared so much as to instruct us that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we might, through all these things, walk with you. Father, we would just ask you to increase in us an appetite for all these things. Increase in us a hunger for your Word and a clearer perception of the surrender and the commitment that a walk with You implies, indeed demands. And Father, we also thank You for the prophecy of Enoch, that indeed the coming of our Lord is sure, unequivocal, unconditional in His coming. We thank You, Father, that You have, through Your grace, called us and sanctified us in Jesus Christ. Into His name we pray.
1: Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device.